Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we're continuing our series with Dr. Neufeld in the book of Ruth. So turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, as we listen to a message entitled, A Lesson on How to Miss the Kind Providence of God. I think it takes some time for Christians to finally and fully grasp the meaning of God's sovereignty. When we say that God is sovereign, we simply mean that God is the ruler over all things. But when we start to grow in our understanding, we ask, does this actually mean all things? You know, Napoleon, at the height of his career, was once asked if he thought that God was on the side of France, and he responded by saying, God is on the side that has the heaviest artillery. Well, that drew a laugh from everyone. And then came the Battle of Waterloo, where he was well supplied with both artillery and troops, and he lost his empire. From his place of exile on the island of St. Helena, he rethought his position on this question. He quoted the words of Thomas A. Kempis, Man proposes, God disposes. A very different view from his earlier pride. And this is exactly the view of God's sovereignty that we should embrace. Man proposes, God disposes. Or as Solomon put it in Proverbs 16, verse 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Sometimes when Christians finally and fully grasp God's sovereignty, it's not unusual to find some who are angry about it and others rejecting it entirely. Why? It's because we wonder, if God is sovereign, how can there be suffering in the lives of those whom God loves? And this question can embitter some. Now today, I can't possibly answer all the reasons for suffering because I simply don't know all the reasons or all the answers, but I do believe we can discover that in the lives of believers, God's sovereignty is a gracious sovereignty. The technical name for God's gracious sovereignty is the word providence. It means that God orders the events in our lives for our good or because of God's great love for us. When Christians talk about the providence of God, we simply mean that God is continually involved with all things. Let me contrast this view with with a view called deism. It was quite popular in the 17th and 18th centuries. Deists taught that God created the world, but that he was no longer active in it. And he had set up the scientific principles that were governing this world, and that these principles were now at work independent of God. Kind of like a watchmaker who makes a watch, and then the watch just ticks along without the watchmaker needing to be there. Now, in contrast to this view is the Bible concept of providence. God is continually involved in all things. Now, we're going to come back to that, but as we continue to read the book of Ruth, we will find that Naomi fully embraces God's providence, but for her, that providence is not a loving providence. In the book of Ruth, we have been introduced to a family, the family of Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, and then their two daughters-in-law, and they've been suffering. First, there has been a famine. Next, all three men have died, and finally, Naomi has traveled back from Moab to Israel with her one daughter-in-law, a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth. And as we read through this amazing little book, we'll find that there are no miracles recorded in this book. No one gets raised from the dead. The poverty of the two women are there, and it doesn't get resolved as in the days of Elijah, when a jar of flour and a jug of oil just keeps being supernaturally refilled. No one gets healed. No five loaves and two fish will feed the multitudes. No miracles at all. 
But that doesn't mean that God is not actively involved in every step along the way. Here we learn about God's providence. You see, miracles are not everyday events. Miracles are those special moments when God, at least from our perspective, violates the laws of nature, and he breaks into our world in a way that's unusual and spectacular and even wonderful. A miracle, by its very nature, is an infrequent event, like the Red Sea parting. It didn't happen every week after that, as if Moses and the people of Israel had revival meetings out there at the Red Sea every year and did the same miracle again. In fact, it never happened again. The only exception that I know was the story of the manna, which went on for 40 years, but even there, the miracle was limited to a time in history, and once that time is done, the miracle ceases. Of course, that doesn't mean that the age of miracles ceases. God is free to break into history at any moment in an extraordinary way. It's just that miracles themselves are exceptional events, only happening once. But what does happen every day, every moment, is that something is just as profound as going on. Every single day, God intervenes in his providential care of all things. For instance, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Greek word for uphold means to carry something or to bear something. And in Hebrews 1 verse 3, the word is used in the present participle, meaning that God is continuously carrying the universe along at each moment in time. God is upholding the universe. He's always active, always involved, even to every detail in carrying the universe. Or consider Colossians 1 verse 17. After arguing that Jesus created all things, Paul goes on to argue, and I quote, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the all things refer to the creation and everything in the creation. The idea behind this is simple. If Christ were not at every moment sustaining the universe, the universe would cease to exist. Now, it's this view of things that caused the Apostle Paul to say to the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 28, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Every one of us are constantly, moment by moment, being sustained and directed by the ever-present, never-wavering, always-guiding hand of God. Many people who pray for miracles are unaware of the matter of God's providence. Now, let me explain. Back in 1937, Walt Disney Studios produced the first-ever full-length animated motion picture. It was called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. In order to produce this, Disney artists actually had to draw by hand well over one million pictures. Every picture was carefully drawn, checked for accuracy, and approved, then actually flashed onto the screen for only one twenty-fourth of a second. But as people watched the movie, it seemed to take place so naturally, so simply, that as if you didn't know what actually went into it, you'd think that this was just normal motion. More care had been taken with every detail than most were aware. And that's how providence works. What we may think of as normal, mundane moments in the everyday course of our lives are ruled by God with his infinite wisdom, skill, and plans of love. And more so, God rules meticulously, caring for details we find hard to imagine. What we may ignore or what we may regard as moments of great joy or horrible pain. 
These moments are, in fact, the details of God's providential care. Part of growing as a Christian is beginning to see not only that God is sovereign, that he rules over everything, but that he rules in our lives in love, providence. So let's read the next section in Ruth. This will be a very short section, but it's vital to understand. I'm reading from Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? When Naomi returns to Bethlehem, we get a snapshot of what is happening inside of her. She's bitter. She lets people know how she interprets her own life. She went away full. She came back empty. And since she knows of God's providence, she believes that God has dealt bitterly with her. That's the scenario for today's account. She arrives in Bethlehem probably during the day when the men were working in the fields and the women of the town see someone new. Historians tell us that during the Old Testament times, Bethlehem never grew any larger than a few hundred people. In the days of the judges, it would have not been at its largest, so let's assume that there were somewhere around 150 people living there. And if you've been a part of a church of 150 or a small village of 150, you'll know that in this kind of a setting, everyone knows what everyone else is up to. And they all knew that Elimelech and Naomi had left for Moab many years ago. And when she came home, Naomi knows what's facing her. People are going to ask, where's your husband and your two sons? Did your leaving Bethlehem through the famine provide you with the economic stability you'd hoped for? Perhaps behind those questions would be those who would judge her behavior. I assume she has already decided what she's going to say. And when the women of Bethlehem see these two women walking through the town, they say, can this be Naomi? And the implication is plain. She doesn't look like herself. No doubt she is aged, and from the text we assume that she looks a lot older than she is. Perhaps she has struggled with her health, but whatever causes this response, we know that her suffering has taken a huge toll. Everyone is shocked at how she looks. And knowing this, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant and delightful. Call me Mara. God has been cruel to me. When we come back, we're going to help to see how a misunderstanding of God's providence leads to that kind of a conclusion. Do you find yourself missing the kind providence of God? I think as Christians, it's so important that we grasp a better understanding of how God is indeed ruling over every aspect of our lives, not only on an individual level, but the fact that He actively rules over the whole entire created universe. This can be a difficult thing to comprehend when we face adversity in life. But when we come back, Dr. Neufeld will unpack what Naomi's example teaches us about how to see God's goodness even in difficult times. Let me begin by thanking those who have partnered to make our new international partnership with Back to the Bible India possible. In the months ahead, Dr. Neufeld's Bible teaching will reach millions of radio listeners, first in English and then both in Hindi and Telugu. And in the new year, Dr. Neufeld will be conducting a pastor's conference where he'll be teaching the discipline of expositional preaching. The annual budget for both launch and sustain of this ministry in India is approximately $80,000. 
So please, would you continue to support this effort financially, either with a one-time gift or as a special international monthly partner? Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Naomi is a woman who understands God's providence, but she does not believe it to be a kind or a loving providence. She says that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. Now, the word for Almighty is the Hebrew word Shaddai. Many of you know that this is one of the formal names for God in the Bible, El Shaddai. The first time we ever encounter this name for God is found in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, a chapter where we are told that Abraham is now 99 years old and Sarah probably around 90. In that chapter, God promises to make Abraham fruitful, the father of a multitude of nations in which kings would come from him. To this seemingly impossible scenario, God introduces to Abraham one of his names, El Shaddai, God the Almighty One. He is the God of unstoppable strength and power. As Daniel would say later in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And since this is true, Naomi says, it is undeniable that Shaddai, the mighty one, has made my life bitter. Now, is she right? Now, here's what I know. Naomi is not the only one to make this statement. Job said something very similar in Job 27, verse 2. As God lives, said Job, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, that is Shaddai, who has made my soul bitter. Now, furthermore, I know Christians who will say the same thing. If God providentially governs all things, and I have encountered devastating loss, what other conclusion can I come to? And so to the question, as the women in Bethlehem see Naomi looking strained and careworn and older than she should have looked, they ask, is this really Naomi? And all she can say is, please don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She's chosen a new name. Mara means bitterness. In fact, in the English language, we get the word mar from this. Now, the word mar means to ruin or to spoil. If someone's appearance is marred, it's been disfigured. It's an interesting choice of names. Those of you who know your Bible well will recognize this word immediately from Exodus 15, verses 22 to 24. There it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And so Naomi identifies with Israel coming out of Egypt, hoping for the best from God and finding only bitter water. And then in order to make herself clear, she, she justifies herself. I went away full, she says, and now I've come back empty. Now, please understand how untrue that is. Full? She went away full? She went away because of a famine. She went away because her husband didn't have enough to eat. And has the Lord really brought her back empty? Well, what's Ruth? She's standing right there, and her mother-in-law says, I have nothing at all. People with embittered spirits aren't even aware of how hurtful they are to others who love them. 
And we notice that as time goes by, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, that the women of Bethlehem would say to Naomi, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. You know, people with embittered spirits aren't aware of the blessings they do have and how the things they think nothing of are worth more than they can imagine. They lack faith. They lack the insight to see the unseen hand of God at work. In the end, bitterness not only robs them of joy, it robs them of faith and is exceedingly hurtful to others as well. Now, let's not pass over Naomi's reaction too quickly, nor let's be too hard on Naomi. I always think it's best not to quickly criticize those who suffer. But even while I want to acknowledge the fact that she must have several days earlier left the graveside of her husband and two sons, let me also say that Naomi is a woman who believes that God is sovereign. She simply does not believe that this sovereignty has resulted in kind providence. So let's think about this for a moment. You might feel the same way. I wonder, do you? I want to give us a lesson on how to miss the kind providence of God. We're going to start on that today and carry on with that theme tomorrow. And if you want to miss the kind providence of God, might I suggest doing three things? Here's the first thing you should do. View the years as cruel. That's what Naomi did. She said, I went away full and I've come back empty. Again, I don't wish to be harsh with her, but we have noticed how she overstates herself. She really didn't leave Bethlehem full, did she? And we will see as we carry on in this study, her husband Elimelech had lost his property. Her family was on the verge of losing their faith. No, she left Bethlehem empty. She has lost, to be sure. But she has not taken into account the poverty that was already hers. She overestimates her loss. See, those who view the years as cruel concentrate on that cruelty. They make so much of their losses, they meditate on them, and they often will remark how difficult life has been. And if that's you, this talk of providence may in fact anger you. Please bear with me. The second way to miss God's kind providence is that we allow bitterness to rule our spirits. Notice how that Naomi not only overstates what she once had, but she also overstates what it is that she's lost. She says, I have come back empty. Now, it's simply not true. Not only has Ruth come back with her, but in graciousness, God has allowed her to come back to the promised land. She will again be allowed to identify with the people of God. She will not die in Moab, but she will be buried in the land where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were buried. Furthermore, No matter how difficult it may be to try to survive in the promised land, Ruth has made an enduring promise never to leave her. And as we think about all these things, let's make a list of all the things that Naomi actually had, all the things that proved that she had not come back empty at all. See, I can think of at least six significant things. Number one, she was still a Jew, and as a Jew, she was one of God's chosen people. That's no small thing. Second thing I notice, she's come back to Israel. The third thing I notice, she's come back to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. There was plenty, and as we will see, that plenty would bless her life. Number four, she had relatives, and as we will also see, one in particular would step up to the plate for both her and Ruth. Number five, there was a provision in the law of God that allowed her to glean barley from the fields. And number six, She has this magnificent daughter-in-law. You know what it takes to allow bitterness to rule your spirit? 
It simply takes a resolute refusal to take note of your blessings. Simply stop making a list of your blessings. Stop speaking about them. Stop thanking God for them. And bitterness is sure to follow. Let me list to you some of my blessings. I'll give you only two of them. Number one, I find myself, John Newfelt, not in hell today. In spite of all of my sins, which deservedly earn damnation in hell for me, I find myself a recipient of God's grace. How about that? Here's the second thing. I also find myself a child of God, and God in infinite mercy from eternity past has chosen me as his child. And those are just the first two of an amazing list of things that I can be thankful for. The list of blessings that follow are truly breathtaking. Now then, here's a third way to miss God's providence. Mistrust the power of God. Notice verse 21. Naomi says, the Lord has testified against me. And then she adds his name a second time. Shaddai, the Almighty, has done this. He testified against me. I find that when people don't understand God's gracious providence, when they suffer, they go in one of two directions. One person will be filled with guilt, believing they actually deserve this, and the other person, who is more outward focused, will be filled with anger, believing they don't deserve this. And both sides miss something significant, the gracious sovereignty of God. God is merciful, but how? It is this that Naomi can't answer. So she views the years as cruel. Bitterness rules her soul. She mistrusts God's power. And if you stay with me tomorrow, we're going to find a way to hope in God's loving providential care, even when things are difficult. John, this message has hit a few of us, I'm sure, right between the eyes. Can you tell us, how do we move from that place of bitterness to joy? I know it's easier said than done, but I think it can be done. I think at the very heart of this matter is the issue of thankfulness and is the issue of taking note of God's grace in our lives. I think some of us really do need to count our blessings. We need to think about how God has dealt favorably with us, and we need to practice a discipline of responding in gratefulness to God. That is the cure. It's that easy and it's that difficult. Thanks so much, John, for today's message. And we look so much forward to tomorrow as we continue to look at the book of Ruth right here on Back to the Bible Canada. This has been a powerful lesson of how easy it is to miss the kind providence of God in the midst of hard circumstances. It's one that we'll need to hear. And I hope that today's teaching has encouraged and perhaps even convicted you in examining your own attitude when it comes to understanding God's plan in the trials and tribulations you might face. We've all heard it said, count your blessings, but maybe we need to start doing that more intentionally. Otherwise, we might find ourselves allowing bitterness to creep into our lives and damage our faith. Join us tomorrow for a final message wrapping up week one of Ruth as Dr. Neufeld looks at how we can actually learn to see the loving providence of God. The August-September issue of Truth and Life magazine is now available. This issue focuses on the all-important topic of culture, the culture we live in, how to be salt and light, and how to share Christ in a multicultural society. So make sure to ask for your free copy of Truth and Life magazine this month. And as an added feature this month, we'll also be presenting the Truth and Life magazine 
online at backtothebible.ca. And not only this month's issue, but back issues as well. So to receive your own free subscription of Truth and Life magazine, or to offer a gift to support and sustain the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, all you need to do is give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit our website at backtothebible.ca.